Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. To Insight for Living, evenings at 8.30. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It's going to be, uh, again, I repeat myself because I do that often. It's going to be a great hour. Dr. Brett Nix is in his car, but he's pulled over to talk to me, so I can't wait to do that. Then Pastor Jeremy Treat's going to be coming onto the show as well. And that's all in this hour just for you, custom made. I think about what I want uh, to put on the show, and I work hard uh, to hopefully bring you all kinds of great information things that grow your faith and bring you closer to the Lord and also keeps you uh, in touch with what's going on around the world because what's going on in China right now where, I don't know, 56 million people are quarantined? Huh. Seems like a pretty big deal, and I don't know much about it, but Dr. Brett Nix does. So I'm going to take 60 seconds and bring him on. If you dream of becoming a published author, take the next step to make your dream a reality. Meet one-on-one with a publisher, literary agent, or published author to get valuable feedback and advice about your writing at the 2020 Northwestern Christian Writers Conference, July 24th and 25th. Tickets are on sale now, and for the month of January, get 20% off the full ticket price. Find out more and register online today at NorthwesternChristianWritersConference.com. Worshiping Together. Welcome back. Dr. Brett Nix is uh, from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. He's an emergency physician. He's a professor at Wake Forest. He does all kinds of things, and he was nice enough to come on to the show today. Brett, welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here. I hope uh, all is well this afternoon for you. Yeah, thank you so much. And I would like to start uh, with just a very uh, private one-on-one moment with you, if I may. Of course. And that is just that you have my my total love and support about Toby. Oh, how did you know about Toby? I read it on your Twitter feed, so. Oh, well, thank you. I, yes. I appreciate that. We can have a conversation at a later point in time, but I, I greatly appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome. All right, this virus, which is pretty nuts from what I can tell, I mean, you got the whole country, the whole country quarantined, so um, I, I really know nothing about it, and I would love to find out something. Yeah, boy, I tell you, it's fascinating. Uh, for a little bit of a background, many people don't know what a coronavirus is, uh, and briefly, it's, it's a large family of viruses that are common in animals, of all things. And on occasion, these coronaviruses that are the animal vectors can sometimes be spread to people. And for those who may recall back in 2003, we heard about this thing called SARS, a severe acute respiratory syndrome. And then maybe some have heard about MERS, which is a Middle Eastern version of the same. These things spread from animals to people. And then on occasion, 
become like a normal virus that we typically get, like influenza and others that can be spread through coughing and sneezing and, and, uh, and touching. And so that leads us to the issue with China. Back in December of this uh, last year, so 2019, in Wuhan City, a new coronavirus was identified. Uh, and since then, uh, it has taken the media by storm. Uh, the CDC reports as of yesterday uh, that uh, we have about 4,500 cases confirmed in mainland China alone. There have been about 100 to 110 deaths in China. Uh, 50 uh, confirmed cases outside of China in 14 different countries now, um, and you know ongoing investigation to see what is going on. The CDC reported that we have five cases in the U.S. at this point, uh, one in Arizona, uh, two in California, one in Illinois, and one in the state of Washington. And all of these patients had returned from the Wuhan, China area where the outbreak is ongoing. Now, I saw a picture of one of these markets, and, and I was... I didn't even know what to think of some of the things they're selling for people to eat. I mean, it, it's it's pretty intense. It is. You know, it, it, the suggestions at this point in the ongoing investigations surround a large seafood and animal market that you may have seen in the media. They have, uh, you know, have had some footage of that. And the growing public health concern really stems from that space. But what we do recognize now is that no longer is it an animal-to-person vector that's being spread from people to people. Uh, we don't have any cases in the U.S. of person-to-person -person spread yet. Uh, but at this point in time, that is obviously why you see such a huge quarantine in China. So, Brad, how are they functioning and, and how are they surviving in China with 56 million people quarantined? I, how does that work? You know, it's a great question because when you think about it, you think about the day-to-day -day resources and the things that you need. Yes. Uh, especially in a, in a major city like Wuhan, they have high-speed trains that go from there to Beijing on a daily basis. All of those have been shut down. Uh -huh. You have process issues. Whenever you have someone going into a new city via these trains, um, that are, that are still, some that are still transporting, uh, they are doing temperature regulation monitoring, just like we started January 17th in five of the U.S. Uh, national, international hubs with airline traffic coming in from China. Uh, you do surveillance, you basically look at from a business perspective, you navigate what you can in your space, uh, and from a, a, a care perspective, you hope that uh, you've prepared well. We know that viruses occur for us this time of year with influenza and everything else, and there's great things that we do to prepare ourselves, uh, anticipating that it's coming. Uh, but of course, when you have an outbreak uh, now of an additional virus, this coronavirus in, in Wuhan City, Again, something else that heightens our awareness of the ongoing process. Yeah, now when I look at some of the pictures and you see the streets that are virtually empty, I think, well, is everyone just staying in their house? And what happens when someone needs medical care? Oh, explain. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, obviously the, the challenges are, are uh, there have been footage related to people who their jobs are to sell things on a day-to-day -day basis on the streets in the absence of any commercial movement at all. They are devoid of a job, and of course, the downstream process there gets into issues of the ability to survive from food and for the usual things that you and I consider on a day-to-day -day basis. For those that are quarantined in their home, obviously what it comes down to is the ability for the family to make sure that they take great precautions. And those are the typical things, being strict about washing your hands. If you have somebody who's sick inside your home, the ability to put on a, a mask and to make sure that you know, they're quarantined. No longer do you use a reusable towel in your bathroom or in your kitchen. You use paper towels and you throw those away and you disinfect regularly. And the things that most people forget, 
doorknobs, remote controls, your cell phone. Those things should be disinfected routinely. And again, when you're looking at a virus, the therapy around these things is supportive care. So if you are somebody who's healthy and you get a virus, typically it's rest, it's good fluids, it's managing your fever, it's making sure that you are able to do well. If you succumb to a more severe process in the illness, obviously that's when you have to go and, and seek medical care in the emergency department and hospitalizations. So if you did acquire this virus, you were living there and you did get it, there, it's not necessarily a death sentence, right? No, it's not. You know, and it's, it's, it's a good point to be brought forward. These are viruses, and you know, typically when you think about those that are at most risk, these are the very, very young, the very, very old, those that have underlying lung disease, those that may have emphysema, maybe have severe asthma, uh, those that may be being in the process of treating for cancer or some other uh, immune-compromised states, those are the ones that we get most concerned about as far as coming from a, a, an illness perspective. You know, keep in mind right now, at least as of what's been reported, we know that there's almost 5,000 cases and we have about 100 deaths. Uh, so from a numbers perspective, it is not a death sentence when you get this virus, but I bet you as time goes along and the information is further delineated, We'll learn more about those that have that have perished from this underlying illness and suspect that commonly we'll find that those that have underlying medical conditions that put them at risk are those that are probably at most susceptible to uh, having a bad outcome. Mm-hmm. Has it spread outside China? It has. So at this point in time, from what is being reported, there are 14 countries outside of mainland China uh, that have reported cases. Um, you know, obviously, if you look uh, at the ongoing map as it relates, a lot of them are actually still in uh, Southeast Asia just by proximity effect. Uh, of course, you know, there's a case in Toronto, so there's a, a, one identified case in Canada. Uh, last I checked, uh, as stated before, there are five cases in the U.S. identified in four different states. Um, but at this point in time, the, uh, the large prevalence of cases that have been identified still remain in the Southeast Asia market. So if someone has come from this Wuhan area and they arrive in Seattle or they're here in Arizona. Um, Tell me the condition they're in and where do they get to the point where they're, are they quarantined or are they, uh, what, I I can't even ask the question right here. Yeah, no, I mean, the thing that people have to keep in mind, this is like any severe respiratory illness. At this time of year, for somebody to have a fever, a cough, maybe some shortness of breath, that could be any number of viruses, not just this coronavirus. It could be influenza, which we know is a virus. Yeah. And so the standing, the standing issues hold true. If you have been in Wuhan in the past few weeks and you develop a fever, a cough, or shortness of breath, you need to seek medical care from a screening perspective and for surveillance, if nothing else. But what we recommend is that you call in advance either to your medical office, uh, if you have a physician, or to the emergency department in your area to let them know in advance that you have these symptoms that you have been in Wuhan or around people that have it recently. And recognize that symptom onset can be delayed up to 14 days after exposure. So many times you'll see it in the first couple days, but it can be delayed up to 14 days. Again, being aware of this and, and following the process is really helpful. And I think the CDC has done an exceptional job. If people aren't sure, they can go onto the CDC and on their banner page. It shows the coronavirus, and there's information right there, specifically the things I just mentioned, and even more so, how to address that should you be one who is succumbing to those symptoms. All right, let me uh, take a little break. Dr. Brett Nix is my guest, and if you have a question for him regarding this uh, coronavirus, uh, and I'm not asking it, please jump on the text line and ask the question, and then I'll get it on the show, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Be right back. 
Dr. Brett Nix is my guest. He's from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Awfully nice of him to, on short notice, come on the program and talk about this coronavirus. And, uh, Brett, as I was watching guys in hazmat suits hosing down airplanes, I'm thinking, okay, this that image is not great for germaphobes. Wondering, okay, how safe is this plane, and did they get it all? I tell you, you know, if you're looking at uh, getting onto a plane that has recently come over from uh, from China or for those who aren't even sure where your plane has been from or the people that were on the last flight, it's one of those things that you should have concern, recognizing that viruses still exist in areas of common area that touch. You look at your your trays on your airplane, you look at the handholds, you look at the seating areas and the different things that you touch. It's important for people to keep in mind that just like you do at home as far as disinfecting things, you know, you can't take in a large bottle of sanitizer with you, but making sure that you have either a small amount of hand sanitizer or some, some wipes is not a unreasonable thing, especially if you are one who travels frequently. You probably do that already, but at this time, especially with the ongoing issues and with globalization of travel around this time of year with influenza, with the coronavirus, something important to consider. Mm-hmm. A listener uh, jumped in with this question. I work with international students on campus, and several of them are Chinese. Can they be carriers of this virus and not know it? It's a great question. So we talked about it briefly. If they just returned from China, given that the typical matriculation of students after the holidays, mm-hmm. or if they're just now returning because of the Lunar New Year celebration, uh, recognize that they could have uh, a process of caring without having symptoms to up for two weeks. So they don't necessarily need to be quarantined, but at the point, at any point in time where they say, oh my goodness, I have fevers, I am having respiratory symptoms, it may just be a virus they picked up at school because that's common this time of year. But if they are travelers from those areas, they should have a heightened concern. And most universities, their health system, especially for student health, should have a process in place uh, to be important, especially if it's a, a professor or other other students. This is not a hysteria issue. It's just an awareness issue as it relates to it. And to put that in perspective, we're talking about the coronavirus, but when we look at influenza, something we see every year, something that we have pretty good evidence related to the vaccine, it's a selected vaccine to identify as best we can guess what the virus will be for this year. So far this season, to put it in perspective, the CDC has approximately 15 million flu cases, 140,000 hospitalizations, and over 8,000 deaths already. We are talking about the coronavirus at this point in time with about 4,500 cases in comparison to 15 million. So we have to keep in mind that influenza is first and foremost present here in the U.S. And yes, we have a traveler-associated illness, but influenza, the same precautions for influenza are the same precautions that apply to the coronavirus. Oh, that's a really interesting uh, a statistic or, or, or perspective. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, it almost seems like America should be quarantined, given those numbers. Well, you know, and if, if you go into many hospitals, especially where I work, I, I work in North Carolina, we have our kind of a quarantine process in our hospitals right now. We have still a rapid abundance of influenza, and so we limit the number of patients that, or families that can come in and out of the hospitals because we have such a high prevalence in the hospital. Number one, we don't want to share it with those that don't have it. Number two, for those that don't have it, we don't want a, a family member to bring it in. And so those that are at risk, the, the young especially, uh, we have substantial limitations when we're in these high influenza states. Uh, and so... That's not an uncommon practice. We don't make the news because of doing that. Uh, it hasn't been since really the swan 
uh, pardon me, the swine flu that we had back in, I think, 2008-9, that we had such high abundance of media coverage for influenza. Mm-hmm. So, Brett, when, when I look at this from a Christian perspective, obviously we want to be very wise about our health, but we don't want to be falling into, you know, fear or hysteria. Um, and maybe you could just share some perspective on, from a physician's standpoint, about how we need to take care of ourselves and our health, but just not be hysterical. And maybe many aren't hysterical, no. but it certainly seems like when you look at pictures of a country of China with 56 million people quarantined, that is pretty scary images. It, it is. It is very scary, and a lot of it is precautionary. Um, you know, we have a heightened awareness, but we have to recognize our bodies were created amazingly well, that routinely, unless we are immune suppressed or have other underlying conditions, our bodies take these viruses in on a routine basis, and we may have symptoms, we may have no symptoms, but our bodies are allowed to heal and go through a process where we navigate those well. Now, that doesn't mean that we are not to take care of our bodies. We all know that our bodies have been given to us, and we're to treat them like a temple. That means you get appropriate sleep. That means you're getting appropriate activity. You take in things that are nutrient to your body to help it grow. It also means that you're taking things in spiritually to, to grow uh, your, your, your soul, and at the same things, things that broaden your mind. There's an incredible balance associated with that that allows you to, to live abundantly, to live vitally, and in that vitality is really where the strength of your health comes from. Uh, so much around that, and many times we get so busy, we don't take good care of ourselves, we don't get good sleep. That's when we are susceptible to viruses, and even a healthy individual can get quite ill uh, and even succumb to death, even from a virus, because they have let their bodies go so far that they don't have the ability to rebound uh, in a natural way. The most important thing as it relates to it, though, is to just educate your family. In this time, whenever we have a global outbreak of any variety, we have to be careful as well to be mindful that just because someone is either coming from China uh, or is Chinese, that doesn't mean that they are inherently carrying the virus. And we need to be mindful that uh, we're not approaching that type of uh, stereotype in this direction, but at the same time, recognizing that each of us have a responsibility to care for ourselves and equally so care for our family, care for our brothers, our sisters uh, that are around us. You know, Brett, because we need to have strong, healthy bodies, is there a way we can, or a, or something we can do to improve our auto, our autoimmune system, strengthen that? You know, I think uh, when you look at all the literature that's out there, there's a lot of people trying to sell you a whole lot of different things in that space. Yeah, I bet. Uh, but if you look at the way our bodies are designed, you know, God created us to be in balance. Uh, and that balance is things that are physical, those are things that are mental, those things that are spiritual, uh, to get those things uh, in, in turn. And if people are waking up after a good night rest and, and waking up feeling rested, that's a positive sign. Uh, you know, many times, and if you look at the length of time that people sleep, it keeps getting truncated shorter and shorter and shorter, and the quality keeps diminishing. That, uh, that sleep is probably one of the most important things that we can do. Uh, for those who have difficulty with sleep, getting into a routine with sleep, making sure that you have ample, appropriate exercise, uh, you know, eating healthy. Uh, and really, when you look at the things that you eat, of course, anybody will tell you, if you eat things that are of, of a more natural basis, less processed issues, less, less refined sugars, those are all things that inherently are healthier for your body. There's always a question about multivitamins, extra vitamin C. Keep in mind, a multivitamin is a supplement. It supplements what you may not have in your diet. And so if your diet is not well balanced, there may be value in that. You know, the concepts that you will hear talked about in many different uh, cultures as well is in the cold seasons, many times people are attracted or should be eating more of what they call the, the bright oranges and yellows. And those are the things like 
you know, a lot of the natural fruits and vegetables that have many of the, the beta carotenes and those types of things in there. Inherently, those are things that, again, are great for your health. Um, and, of course, if it's cold outside, who wouldn't go for a nice bowl of warm soup, you know, whether it be a chicken noodle soup or somebody who's creative making, you know, a natural carrot-based soup or something like that. Those things are warming. They're great. And from a health perspective, as long as you keep the salt at a low level, they're very good for you. Yeah. Now, Brett, you mentioned uh, sleep about six or seven times in the last five minutes. So I'd love for you to tell our, our listeners what your, um, you know, your nighttime rituals are and what time do you go to bed? <laughs> that's a, that's a, is that a trick question, right? I'm an emergency physician. So okay. <laughs> I take that back. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I, take... I work days. Sometimes I work evening. Sometimes I work nights. But yeah. Much of what's out there from the literature, there was a study a few years ago that talked about a small percentage of our population that does very, very well on less sleep, and that was in that five- to six-hour window. But it's a very small uh, study that said there may be a genetic predisposition that allows people to function very well. It didn't say for how long. That was the interesting thing. Mm -hmm. But most of the literature says you need to get good quality sleep for a, a probably a seven- to eight-hour window per night, and that is, in current standards, probably the optimal. Uh, there, there may be some variance slightly based on, you know, your body and your genetics and things like that. But if you think about the things that we know to be true, uh, too much screen time, whether it be TV, computer, iPad, phone, et cetera, the blue light emission process related to it does not allow the body to go through its natural process. Slowing down before you sleep is a great thing to do. It allows the natural things that our bodies were created to do. We secrete natural melatonin when our body senses darkness, and so that prepares us for sleep. Uh, so going through that ritual routinely and trying to minimize those types of things that inherently prevent you from falling asleep, uh, if you have a routine with that, that's great. And then making sure that, you know, before you go to bed that you've set aside that what you know the first things you need to do the next day are, that way you're not waking up in the middle of the night thinking, did I remember? Am I going to remember what I need to do? And, you know, plan your day out in advance of that. Make sure that, again, buried within that process, you start your day uh, in a healthy way as far as appropriate time. I really do think that a time point, points for reflection, whether that be in devotion, whether that be in prayer, meditation, things like that that allow you to prepare yourself for the day when you first get started really sets the tone. Uh, and there's a lot to be said about a simple accomplishment at the beginning of your day, whether that be just getting yourself ready, whether that be making your bed. Those simple things tend to move you forward recognizing that many of us move forward well with simple accomplishments. Yeah, it's such good wisdom. Uh, and thank you so much for doing the show and doing it on such short notice. I really appreciate you coming on today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, and uh, I hope it's helpful for a few folks. Oh, it's been very helpful. Thank you so much, and have a great rest of the day. Thank you very much, and you, you as bet. well. Yep, Dr. Brett Nichol Nix has been my guest from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. We'll take a short break, and then we'll be back with Pastor Jeremy Treats. Jeremy Treat is a pastor and lives in Los Angeles where it's 70 degrees, so obviously I've 
got an attitude about him, but I'll try to get over it. <laughs> Jeremy, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. I'm really honored to be here, and hopefully I can bring a little bit of the sunshine. I appreciate it. Have you been a California guy uh, most of your life? Or... No, no. I, I, so I actually grew up in Alaska, so I understand the cold and the snow. I lived in Alaska until I was 12, and then uh, Seattle area after that. I've been in Los Angeles now for over seven years. Okay. And what was, uh, what were you, what was your dad doing in Alaska? Well, he was a he was a carpenter. He ended up starting his own cabinet shop business, um, and so he was building cabinets. And then his his cabinet shop burned down. And in 1987, he bought an Apple Macintosh store. Oh wow! So he <laughs> unfortunately unfortunately he didn't get any stock, but okay. he got in early on in computers and uh, a pretty you know interesting career shift. But yeah, that. So I, I, I grew up in the cabinet shop and then in the computer store. Yeah. And you uh, preach and uh, lead at Reality LA in Los Angeles. And you did some mm. work at Biola University. And you're, uh, you're just kind of a guy that can do anything and everything. Uh, well, God's given me some great opportunities. And I mean, to be able to pastor in Los Angeles um, is, is a joy. It's crazy and difficult. And nonstop, but, but I love it. And then I love Biola. I mean, I did, I did part of my undergrad at Biola and, um, loved it as a student. So to be able to teach a little bit there on the side is a real honor. Yeah. Now you were, I think we're in high school when you uh, read a little CS Lewis and your, and your heart just got lit on fire, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, growing up, I, I didn't read very much at all. Um, and I, I, I did okay in school, but, when I read when I read C.S. Lewis, I felt like um, it made me realize how much I didn't know, and that kind of like sparked this hunger to learn within me. And um, I think that was the first time for me, really, that like my faith kind of took on any sense of intellectual rigor or um, of just like learning to love God with my mind. And started reading theology and even just trying to read the scriptures in a way to have a, a deeper level of understanding with it. And so, yeah, I feel like that's never stopped for me. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting at a desk that's surrounded by piles of books. So <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm still going in that route. Yeah. And the book you came out with, uh, I think it was last April, is called Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything. I'd love to hear about that, just to get things yeah. started. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, for me, growing up, I grew up in the church and uh, I didn't hear much about the kingdom of God growing up, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, we talked a lot about the cross. We talked a lot about heaven. We talked a lot about the love of God. But um, we never really talked about the kingdom. And I, I, I've, I've since learned that, you know, that, that's because I grew up in a context where people were nervous about uh, social gospel, and which was associated with kingdom and kind of connotations with that. But I remember um, hearing one day that the number one thing that Jesus talked about is the kingdom of God. And that just floored me because I, um, it, it, I, I'd hardly talked about it. I'd hardly heard about it. And how could the number one thing that Jesus talked about not really be on my radar in terms of what it means to be a Christian or how I think about God or what he's doing in the world? And so that really set me on a journey of saying, I, I need to understand what the kingdom of God is and how that applies to my life. And so my book, Seek First, is 
is really the result of that. And, you know, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And so I, in the book, I try to show what, what is the kingdom of God and then apply it to a bunch of different aspects in life. Yeah. Now, Jeremy, you talked about growing up and you learned about the cross and now that you're studying and teaching about the kingdom, what, what is the relationship between the kingdom and the cross? Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's something that I spent three years of my life trying to answer that question. I, I did my PhD at Wheaton College, and I wrote my dissertation um, trying to answer that exact question of how does the kingdom and the cross relate together? Because in my experience, uh, there were some people who would want to cling to the cross, others who would champion the kingdom, but usually one to the exclusion of the other. And so you kind of have these whole crowds uh, and churches developing around those, some who have a cross-centered theology that's focused on salvation, and then others who are more kingdom-minded and want to be more activist. And so I I spent a few years uh, studying the scriptures and, and reading theology. And what I really came to with that is seeing that, that you can't understand the kingdom without the cross, and you can't understand the cross without the kingdom. And in Scripture, we see those integrated in this beautiful story. It really is a story of the kingdom of God that culminates in the crucifixion of Christ, the Messiah, the King. And so he brings the kingdom through the cross, and then we live in this cross-shaped kingdom where we take up our crosses, we deny ourselves, and follow Christ the King. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, I'm just thinking because when you write a book about something and you become, uh, you know, a, a go-to person, uh, now in your case, you want to talk about the kingdom, and I'm wondering what kind of questions do believers come to you with regarding the kingdom? Yeah, um, for a lot of people, it depends. It depends on the the different tradition that they've been in, oh, for and, sure. and the ways that kingdom has been associated for them. Um, kingdom can kind of become this junk drawer term that gets attached to different things. Mm-hmm. And so for, for a lot of people, um, they, they only associate the kingdom with the end times and with the return of Christ. Um, and so for them, they might ask questions about, well, what does this mean to think of life today in light of the kingdom of God, if that's something that's solely future? And so I, I'll try to explain to them that the kingdom is, is, already and not yet. So there are future aspects of the kingdom of God that that we look forward to in the scriptures of the return of Christ, the renewal of all things, and we need to long for that and hope for that. And yet we have to acknowledge that the kingdom has already come in Christ. And so we can experience the victory of the kingdom today and the peace of the kingdom today. So, So with people in that situation, I might talk about that. Others, if they're coming more from like a mainline liberal tradition, they might associate kingdom uh, with what we do to help people. So when they hear about kingdom, they think of feeding the homeless or think, they think of doing good things in the city. And, and what I would want to talk with them about is how justice is certainly a reflection of the kingdom of God, but the kingdom is not about what we do to make the world a better place. Uh, in Hebrews, it says, we do not we do not build the kingdom, we receive the kingdom from above. And so the kingdom is ultimately God's reign breaking in, and then that shapes our lives. So when we are living as citizens of the kingdom, we are we are going to look uh, to the needs of the poor. We're going to be like the the uh, the Good Samaritan, right? Who's who's looking to show God's love and compassion to people. But it's also really important that we don't confuse. 
uh, this message of the kingdom, which is ultimately one of grace, of God's reign breaking in, it's important that we don't confuse that with what, what we do, as if we are building the kingdom here on earth. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of people that pray every day, thy kingdom come. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that the, you know, the Lord's prayer, um, it really shows the essential direction of the kingdom, that it's, it's ultimately about God's kingdom coming from above and breaking in into our lives. But we can experience that every day as we're praying that. Jeremy, let's talk a little bit about the, you know, you talk about in your book, the, the in search of a master narrative. Like, why are yeah. we here? What's wrong? What's the remedy? How will mm-hmm. it end? These are great questions. And I think all of us need to be looking at these questions and formulating our answers. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, everyone, everyone loves stories, right? That's mm-hmm. why we watch movies and listen to songs and sit around campfires. Um, but, but it's not just that we like stories. Everybody lives by a bigger story, a master narrative. And this is what gives us our identity. It's what tells us what our purpose is. It's what wakes us up in the morning and keeps us going during difficult times. It's, it's the way that we, we frame our lives. And so, uh, you can you can easily look around our culture and realize that um, it's not just that people are are rejecting kind of uh, one story of like the story of Christianity. They're they're replacing it and living by another story. So a secular narrative that says that that really says the story. The goal of the story is personal happiness, and I'm the hero of that story, and mm-hmm. and that kind of frames my life and why I get frustrated if anyone tells me I can't do what I want to do and whatnot. And so recognizing that everybody lives by a bigger story in that sense, and the the scriptures give us the master narrative, the, the greatest story of all, where we're in this good world created by God. Um, but it's fallen. Our sin has brought brokenness. And so that ex- that explains already both the beauty and the brokenness of the world. But then God is redeeming his creation. And so we play a key role in the story, but we're not the hero. Um, Christ is. And so we look to him, and that's what gives us meaning and identity and security in life. Mm-hmm. I, I find the the idea that we don't really learn a lot about the kingdom, uh, and maybe it's just the wave of what's happened over the last several decades, I, I think I hear, like you said, more about the cross, more about um, obviously Jesus, who is the, mm-hmm. you know, the reason that we, uh, that he is our life, but also this this whole kingdom. Whenever I hear the kingdom, I always associate it uh, oftentimes with uh, social justice things. And yeah. it's a much bigger uh, picture than that, isn't it? Yeah, and it's. I think it's going to it's going to connect with and frame social justice issues for sure, but you can't just equate it with that and and kind of say if if we're doing these certain things, then that's that's just kingdom work automatically. So I mean, the the ultimate kingdom work, so to speak, is seeing people transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. So even the kingdom of God frames the way that we shape salvation, and that really that really uh, impacts day-to-day life because it's not just I'm saved as like a ticket to go to heaven when Mm -hmm. I die, but I'm saved into a kingdom. And I live following that kingdom or following that king every day. Uh, But again, that doesn't minimize social justice in my mind. I mean, you see clearly throughout the Old Testament that the, the throne of God is founded on justice and righteousness. 
And you have constantly these depictions in the Old Testament, even of the longing for the eternal kingdom of God as um, as a, a place where there will be no oppression and injustice and all the wrongs will be righted. So justice is a key element of the kingdom of God, but it's not the only element. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about in your book, A Kingdom Purpose, I, I love these chapters, follow Jesus, seek community, pursue justice. I mean, uh, yeah, nicely stated. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd love for you to talk yeah, a little bit about each. Well, I think part of that is that we need we need to recognize how all of those fit together. So you've got, and I think the kingdom of God helps us hold those together because some people might just make it all about following Jesus and it's all about discipleship, but mm-hmm. but they can turn that into like a um, an individualized pursuit of holiness that's not connected to community or. Uh, how God's called us to to be salt and light in a city, right? Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, other people might just focus on pursuing justice, but they miss out on uh, following Jesus and being with Jesus, knowing Jesus, and then how we're we're called to the city, but we're also set apart as a family of disciples. So I think we need to make sure that we see each one of those aspects in the calling to the kingdom. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, um, your perspective living in Los Angeles and what you see in your communities here in in Minneapolis, we have to stay kind of close together because we just need the human warmth. Uh, But, you know, I'm curious as to what you see, what is the community in the body of Christ uh, doing in Los Angeles? Is it uh, moving in a good place? Is it drifting away? What do you see? Yeah. Um, you know, overall, I, I'm really encouraged. Oh, good. I, I see the Lord doing incredible things. And and we see that in our church. We see people getting saved and baptized and lives being changed and uh, people maturing in their faith and applying their faith to their work. But not only do we see that in our church, I mean, I see it in, in lots of churches around. There's been a lot of church plants in mm-hmm. Los Angeles in That's the last— great seven or eight years. And it's really hard. It's a really, it's, it's a really isolating city. It's an expensive city. And so, uh, it can be hard for church plans to make it through, but I, um, you know, I just, I just sent an email out to about 25 pastors in LA and having them all over for lunch soon. And we get together and start telling stories and we all just get fired up. I mean, God is in the move. God is on the move in a, in a, really beautiful way. And, and hopefully that's a lasting way. I mean, we're seeing more and more churches that are putting down roots, um, and committing to the city for the long haul. So, yeah, I, I know that there's, there's certainly perceptions of Los Angeles from the outside and, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of brokenness here and I, I'm, I don't want to downplay that, but the Lord is here and he's doing a good work. I love it. Jeremy Treat is my guest. He is a pastor for Preaching and Vision at Reality LA, which is a a young, thriving church in in LA, California. He also is an adjunct professor of theology at Biola. So lots of uh, of reasons to like him. We have a lot of Biola uh, professors that come on the show, and we we love all you guys. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. I I love Biola. They've they've, uh, been doing a good work for a long time. Yeah. So I'll take a little break. When we come back, lots more with Jeremy Treat. Welcome back to the show. Jeremy Treat is my guest. We're chatting about his book, Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything, came out last April. 
And as we are now at this place in our uh, in our calendar where it's now 2020 and the world is getting increasingly more political, I know I would love to get your perspective, uh, Jeremy, on how we look at the world, keep our eyes on Jesus, have wisdom in these political times, um, and, and look through the lens of faith and try to figure out how we can point towards unity with each other. Yeah, I mean, with, with the election coming up at the end of the year, politics is going to dominate the landscape of our culture throughout this whole year. And so I, I as a pastor, I'm, I'm trying to prepare our church to be able to be faithful to Christ in the midst of all of that. We're doing a sermon series right now on politics and the way of Jesus. And so we, we just kicked that off last week. And um, trying to be able to talk about things, trying to be able to give Christians tool, tools and uh, the equipping that they need to be ready for this cultural storm that we're in. So I think some of the keys of that is that we've got to recognize that our citizenship in the kingdom of God shapes and overrides our citizenship in any city or country that we live in. And I think scripture makes clear that we're dual citizens but we are Christians before we are Republicans or Democrats. And we say that Jesus is Lord in such a way that makes clear that our allegiance is ultimately to him. So I think we've got to be clear on that. But I think something that's really important about all this that's often missed in these discussions is I believe that the way we talk about politics is just as important as what we believe about politics. And people have always disagreed about politics and government. But what if one of the main problems today is that we've lost the ability to actually dialogue with people that we disagree with? Mm -hmm. So I think for Christians to be able to step into this political season that we're entering into and be able to take some of the, uh, the, the basic teachings of Scripture to show love, to people that you disagree with, to pray for your enemies, to, to see the, the image of God in every single person, whether they align with us or not on our politics. So I think Christians could really stand out in this year if we both apply our faith to our politics, but also do so in a way that's, that's characterized by love. So it's a, maybe a great example of how uh, seeing ourselves as member of, members of the kingdom first is going to affect how we uh, see others and how it changes how we live. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we look at politics through the lens of the kingdom and, and not the other way around. Um, it's, the danger is when, when our, our primary identity and allegiance is to a political party, and then we try and squeeze Jesus into that or find Bible verses that can support that, then we have, we've kind of co-opted uh, we've been co-opted by a political party and just trying to use scripture or any resources from Christianity um, to, to bulk that up even more. But that's not what God has called us to be. He's called us to be a, a people who are different, who are set apart, um, and who are united in Jesus. I mean, we, we should be able to have uh, Republicans and Democrats and independents and libertarians who can actually unite uh, because what we're united by in Christ is stronger than the differences that we have in, po in politics. Amen. I love that you said that. But still, there is great emotion attached to this discussion, and you mm -hmm. could start a virtual firestorm with one word 
um, or you know one one thought that's not expressed clearly can can start off uh, just a complete snowball of yeah misunderstandings and and anger. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we've talked about as a church, and I've tried to encourage people with, is to have wisdom in the kind of spaces where you're engaging in these conversations. So uh, perhaps social media isn't the best place Hmm. for political discourse. Right. And um, I really think that if, if you care about relationships as much as you care about being right, then the best thing to do is to sit down and talk with people face to face and try and show empathy and understand where they're coming from and ask them how they got there and show them respect in the midst of all of that. Try to understand before you respond. That's the kind of dialogue that we need to have and that we need to model. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, I'd also, just as we talk about the kingdom and how we live out our lives in the kingdom, maybe it's uh, good to have a, a discussion too about having a healthy fear of God. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I think about Isaiah 6, and I, I, Isaiah is before the throne of God, and he looks up and sees the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And his response, and remember, Isaiah is a prophet who would usually say, woe, woe is you, woe to you. And he says, woe is me. And this kind of fear of the Lord, this holy reverence, recognizing that God is king, his ways are higher than mine, his thoughts are higher than mine, I think is crucial to everything. I mean, I think the fear of the Lord is is this reverent awe of God that he is Lord, he reigns over all. And that and that brings a humility um, and a self-awareness to, to who I truly am that, that's at the heart of it all. I mean, I, I think the kingdom of God at the end of the day it is— it's this vision of the world reordered around God. And so it's a, it's a radically God-centered view of, of life. Mm-hmm. All right, Jeremy, I'm going to ask you a question, which I know in advance you know the answer to, but here it is. Why do you love Jesus? Well, I love Jesus because he first loved me. I mean, he, I was a, I was a, a rebel, and he sought me out and made me a son and gave me a place at the table. And I, if, if it weren't for the gospel, um, I, I would be running myself into destruction uh, more than ever. And so I, I'm, I am who I am by the grace of God alone. And I, I, I first learned that as a teenager, but to this day, to be able to come back to the gospel and just live in light of the grace of God in Christ, uh, that how he died for my sins, rose from the grave, that I have new life, be a citizen of the kingdom. Uh, that's everything to me. Mm-hmm. When you came to faith in Christ, uh, Jeremy, do you remember the, the specific language that was used with you and how you responded to that language? Um, yeah, I think I, let's see. That's a good question. I haven't thought about that in a while. I don't know if I can remember exactly, but I feel like I remember my context enough to know the kind of language. I mean, we talked about accepting Christ or receiving Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I remember for me, one of the things that uh, some of the, I don't know if it's just language or concepts that were really important for me. I grew up in the church and I always knew that Jesus loved me and he died for my sins and whatnot. But I 
I had not really acknowledged my own sin and my need for God's grace. And when I think about even my conversion, I, I think back to that of, of that being a, a pivotal moment. I knew that God was gracious, but I didn't recognize that I, that I needed it. Um, my pride had to be melted away um, before I could uh, receive this grace in, in such a way. So I, th- I think being able to th- that kind of just acknowledging sin, receiving grace, those are just real basic categories. Yeah. Yeah. Jeremy, it's really been nice to meet you. Thank you so much for doing the show. Oh, it's an honor. Thanks for yeah. having me on. Yeah. And I would love to have you back. And I will let all my listeners know that Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything, is a great read. Uh, thank you so much for doing the show and have a great rest of the day. Yeah, thank you. God bless. You bet. Jeremy Treat, again, has been my guest, and his book is called Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything. That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you so much for listening and being with us today. Um, Just I love you, and I I love that you support and listen to Faith Radio. As you lay your head on the pillow tonight, just know that God's working out his great plan in your life. God bless. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.